in order for Jesus to be our substitute, it was necessary. It was the righteousness of God that had to keep him there. And he could not save himself since he had to save his people. Mark 15, we'll be reading from verse 25 down to verse 32. <clears throat> from verse 25. The word of God reads, It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! Huh, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save your, yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ the king of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. This last sentence in this passage, I'm going to dedicate an, a one sermon for it. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. It's too good to just skim through it as part of this passage. So Lord willing, the next message I preach will be on that one sentence, half of a verse. Just a quick background. It is now Sunday morning at the Passover feast. Tens of thousands of visitors and pilgrims pouring into the city of Jerusalem through the gates. And they're passing by and they're mingling with the sellers who came from different villages from all around Jerusalem. And they, they're taking advantage of this Passover feast and they set up their merchandise just um, inside the gate of Jerusalem to catch all those visitors. Um, that are entering into the city. You can imagine <clears throat> there are elderlies <clears throat> that are marching through the crowd. Children are running um, up and down the streets and they're playing. There are men and, and women along with their lambs heading to the temple to offer their lambs as a sacrifice. And there are others at the gate still, they're purchasing um, bitter herbs and vegetables in order to prepare for that meal that they're going to celebrate that evening. It's all happening at the gate. It wasn't an easy procession that started from Pontus Pilate Palace. As Jesus was bearing his cross, spearheaded by a centurion and four soldiers, who were torturing him just before. And they were surrounding Jesus. It was their professional job to torture men who were just about to be crucified. And it was normal for them to march in this procession for, their cruci for that crucifixion to take place. However, that day, this morning, it was a little bit more challenging for them. Why? There were far more people blocking the road. And that marching procession moved so slow, as slow as a nail's pace. And the soldiers would have had to wave their whips carelessly to clear out the traffic jam, and the crowd would have complied. 
they would have complied because after all those Roman helmets on their soldiers' heads as well as um, the spears and the swords that they carried and the sound of the whip as it cuts through the, the air, the, the clattering, the sound and the noise of the steel as the shields would hit the swords. All of these things would have set it, um, sent a, a chill through their spine of everyone that was there. Of course, everyone would have complied. As also the scourged Jew stumbling and sway beneath the, the weight of the cross, it sent a message to the crowd, to everyone that was there. And what was the message? Rome is dominant. Rome is in charge. And where are they taking this rebel, this criminal? Well, they're taking him to be crucified at Golgotha, just outside of the gate. It was a place to be avoided. Down the valley, there is a valley just near Golgotha, and it's called Gehenna, a place of horror, of stench, where dead animals are thrown, flies and, and maggots are fed on, on this dead flesh, and, and there was constant fire um, that was there burning uh, human and animals' refuse. The stinking smoke down from this valley would ascend up and would be blown towards Calvary, where Jesus was crucified. Calvary is the Latin word for Golgotha. Place of death. A place where the anger and the curse of God could almost be felt and smelled and touched. It was that place where even hundreds of years earlier, God commanded the Jews to drag men and women there who broke the law of Moses and were worthy of death. And they were to be stoned in that place. Golgotha is called the place of skull. It was a place of public execution. And this was the destination of the procession. It was there where Jesus was hung between heaven and earth. This was where Jesus was accursed of God and mocked by men. Well, you're up to date with where the narrative is at at that moment. And uh, moving forward and with this passage that we read at hand, we want to see what the cross communicates to us. What else that we can extract out of this magnificent event that took place 2,000 years ago? What does the cross show us? Three things that we're going to look at that the cross shows us. Number one, the sovereignty. Number two, the servitude. And number three, the scorn. The sovereignty, meaning the authority of God, the power of God in action. Number two, the servitude. And we want to see the compassion, the mercy, and the, and the love of the Son of God. Number three, the scorn. And more precisely, the unbelief of man. So three key players at the cross. God, the Son of God, and men. Number one, the sovereignty. That is to say, the authority of God. And we see wonderful, wonderful display of God's sovereignty in that verse 25. It says in verse 25, it was the third hour when they crucified him. Many unbelievers who attempted to overthrow the sovereignty and the authority of the scripture, they love this verse. They love this verse. You know why they love it? Because in John 19 verse 14, it tells us that it's about the sixth hour when Jesus was sentenced to be crucified. And they say, well, how is it that Jesus, according to the gospel of Mark, was crucified on the third hour 
while according to the gospel of John, Jesus was sentenced to death at the sixth hour. I mean, surely Jesus would have been sentenced before um, he was executed, not the other way around. You see, the Bible contradicts itself. Don't study it. Don't read it. It's full of errors. Poor unbelievers. Had these critics studied the historical context in which both Gospels were written, they would have known. They would have known that the Jews and the Romans used two totally different methods in calculating the time of the day. John always adopted the Roman method in, the, in his gospel, and it's the same as our method today of working out the, the time of the day. And that is the, the start of the day begins when? At midnight, right? So for John to say that at the sixth hour, that is to say at 6 a.m., Jesus was sentenced. And the Jews used, um, used to calculate the time of the day from 6 a.m., 6 in the morning. So for Mark here in his passage, in this verse, to say um, that the Jewish, uh, that, that Jesus was um, the third, that it was the third hour when they crucified him, Mark here uses the Jewish method in calculating the, word, the time of the day. So what, what do you do when he says, in the third hour, you just simply add three hours to 6 a.m. And what do you get? You get 9 a.m. when the soldiers began to execute Jesus. So to wrap it up, in other words, Jesus was sentenced to death at 6 a.m. And at 9 a.m. they began the crucifixion. No contradiction at all. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Why? Think about it. Think about the position in how God's predetermined plan is unfolded. While the soldiers are crucified, and while the crowd uh, mocking Christ, and in the midst of all this kerfuffle and, and the suffering that is taking place, Jesus was hung on the cross at 9 a.m., so that he would die at 3 p.m. exactly at the same time when the Passover lambs are being slaughtered in the temple. You see, the death of Jesus didn't catch God by a surprise. It's not that God was holding, had his hands tied behind his back and, you know, poor, poor Jesus, poor Jesus, he died. And, and, and now God in heaven waving his hands and saying, I'm sorry, my bad, my bad. You know, I, I was too busy uh, uh, looking at a war that was taking place in Africa and I overlooked this crime. You know, I could have protected Jesus, but I, just, I was just too busy. No, it was God that instituted the Passover feast when? Long ago, 1,500 years earlier. And he moved all situations, all circumstances, and all the affairs of this world so Jesus would be hung exactly on Friday at 9 a.m. Why? So he would die at 6 p.m. later. And he would die precisely the same time the lambs are being slaughtered at the temple. Now why everyone would know that Jesus is the fulfillment of all those sacrifices that are taking place at the temple. He is our Passover lamb. Everything that happened on that day was precisely according to God's timetable. This is the sovereignty of God on display. So, Brothers, be comforted. Be comforted. No matter how heavy our crosses may be. Brothers, we must always take rest. Believing this fact that God is in control. Over all of our trials. Not just Jesus' trials, but our own trials. He's always precise. He's always in charge. 
Number one, the sovereignty, the authority of God. Number two, the servitude, the compassion of Christ, the Son of God. So we continue in verse 26. The inscription of the charge against him, the king of the Jews. <clears throat> this inscription, the king of the Jews, if you read um, the Gospels, all the four Gospels, you'll find that each one has got a short version of what was actually written on that day. Nothing was different. It's just a short version. And you can look it up yourself in Matthew, Luke, and John. In Matthew says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Luke says, this is, the, this is, sorry, Matthew says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Luke says, this is the king of the Jews. John says, Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. So when you join all the pieces together, like I did, you get the full version of the inscription and it would read, this is Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. And this sign here states the crime for which Jesus was condemned and crucified. It was nailed just above Jesus uh, on the cross. And the Gospel of John 19 verse 20 tells us that it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. Hebrew, of course, because that's the native language uh, of those Jewish people at that time. It was close to the Aramaic language that they, that they spoke. Latin, because that was the official language of Rome. And Greek, because that's the universal written language of the empire at that time. So why did uh, Pilate write this and place it uh, above Jesus' head in three languages, it's in order to maximize the visibility and the understanding of everyone that would go in and out of the city gates. So everybody would know why Jesus was crucified. Now, if you uh, read the Gospel of John a bit more, you'll find that the religious leaders, they, they didn't like this inscription. And they went back to Pilate and told him, well, you've got to change it. It was the last thing that they wanted people to read. That a crucified rebel, especially Jesus, to be called the king of the Jews. But Pilate insisted that he won't change it. How come? It was a war of control and power. Ten times Pilate wanted to release Jesus and ten times those religious leaders overruled Pilate. It would have been no wonder that his hatred towards them intensified. And so he wanted to get back at them and he used it as an opportunity to mock them and to offend them. How? By mocking and offending Jesus himself. And so he wrote this to offend them. It's as though he was saying to them, here is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Here is the, the, the only king they could, that you were able to produce out of your nation. There is your powerless, unable to breathe king dangling naked from his throne. And it would have been insulting to those patriotic Jews. It's kind of like getting someone's flag and burning it in his own country. And, and he can't do anything about it. So Pilate wanted to offend them by offending Jesus. Little did Pilate know that the Almighty God was actually speaking in and through his, this inscription. Little did he know that he happened to be the first person to write the first gospel tract in the whole world and in three different languages. So everyone would know that Jesus is actually the king of the Jews. And not only that, but as Jesus is lifted up um, and by the very means of the cross that he crucified him on, 
by that very means, not only is Jesus now the king of the Jews, but in a matter of short time after his crucifixion, that Jesus sat at the right hand of the Father. And now he's called the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Back to, to the narrative. Again, Pilate in his quest to, to insult the Jews even further. Of course, by insulting Jesus in verse 27, it says, They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. So he placed two criminals, one on either side of Jesus, and it says there there were two robbers. That would just like Barabbas, if you recall. So they were insurrectionists. They were cold-blooded. They weren't just robbers. I don't know, like you, you, you go and you, you rob a, a donkey and then they crucify you. It wasn't like that. They were, they were insurrectionists. And, and uh, in order to continue to pursue their goals and dream by overthrowing Rome, um, they would steal uh, money. They would make their living by stealing um, possessions from innocent people. They were thieves. They were rebels. And how was it that Pontius Pilate was trying to offend the Jews by placing Jesus in the middle? He was kind of saying, here is your king on his throne. Among lowlife, riffraff, the scum of the earth, are his ministers. It's a kingdom of crucified men. Again, little did Pontius Pilate know that he was fulfilling a 700-year prophecy. Verse 28 says, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with transgressors. This is taken word for word from Isaiah 53 verse 12. Now granted, if you look carefully in that verse in your Bible, you'll find that there are square brackets at the end of, uh, of this verse, in both ends of this verse, meaning that it wasn't recorded in the earliest manuscripts in the Gospel of Mark. So in in other words, most likely Mark did not pen this down. But nevertheless, it is true. Jesus was numbered with the transgressors and this was a fulfillment. Pilate, he made a decision to hang Jesus between two criminals and this perfectly fulfilled this Old Testament prophecy. Now. To the world of power and prestige. Jesus' death was a death of shame. To die among transgressors. Between two thugs. To this world. It is such a degrading thing. But. To the God of heaven and earth. It is such an honorable thing. It's a compassionate thing. Behold how humble Christ is. How compassionate is our Savior. Didn't he say that he came to seek and to save that which was lost? Was he not a friend of tax collectors? and sinners? Did he not receive prostitutes, money lovers, violent men deep into his heart? While the world chases after status, fame and health and they assess situations in the light of what they chase after, Jesus came to chase after the sick. Jesus came 
to chase after the worst kind of sinners. He came to identify with these who were morally out of reach. He was numbered with the transgressors. He's so full of compassion. He loves to stretch his hand and gently reach into the very depth of the souls of even the vilest and the most wicked sinners. Why? So that he would replace their hearts with new hearts. How merciful, how gracious is this king of the Jews. All other kings, they show their glory by how many people they can kill. But this king, He shows his glory by how compassionate he is. How he identifies with even the most deplorable, the most sinful people. Do you think that you're morally good? That you're all sorted? That you have your life in order? May God have mercy upon your soul. But do you feel so defiled that every time you look at yourself in the mirror, you see a a thief on the cross? Do you sense your own wickedness and you feel that you, you just about everything that you do, you stuff up? Oh, do I have good news for you? Jesus was hung among crucified criminals. And he longs to identify with sinners like you. It is his glory to show mercy. It is his glory to hug sinners so tightly to his wounded side. And the more vile sins you commit, the more he moves with love to forgive criminals like you. To be united with people like you forever. Why? So that he would help them from the within their own hearts to hate their sin and to give them power to change. This is our king, our glorious king, the the majestic king. This is our awesome king, and it is no wonder his people will always praise him. To the servitude, the compassion, and the love, and the mercy, and the grace of our Savior that would lead him to identify himself with the worst kind of criminals. And let me tell you, if you came, to reach out to even the worst kind of criminals, it is to say that he would reach any criminal, any sinner, any kind of sinner, would be not far from his reach. Now back to our narrative in the third, third point, the scorn. And more specifically, the unbelief of man. See the wickedness of the unbelief of man. From this point onwards, Mark in rapid succession, he would show us different groups, three different groups. And he is now going to show us how these three groups reacted to Jesus on the cross. The first are the the crowd, the bypassers, and the second, the religious leaders, the third, the robbers, which, as I said earlier, we're not going to talk about the robbers today. We'll dedicate a message next, next time when I preach. So first, those that are passing by. <clears throat> now, It says in verse 29, those passing by. Who were those that were passing by? Many of them were those who hours earlier, if you recall, cried out, crucify him, crucify him. They cried out for his death. They wanted his blood. 
perhaps among these people who enjoyed his teaching for a while. There were those that saw his miracles or even more partook of his miracles and that were healed. Remember, Jesus done wonderful, amazing and countless number of miracles. Maybe even some of them were false disciples. And for a while, they loved Jesus. Or so they thought and they followed after Jesus. And these were passing by along the road. Maybe they were going somewhere. We don't know where. But they stopped long enough to take into that scene. And they placed their eyes squarely upon the king of the Jews. And what we need to understand is that because they lusted so much after earthly wealth and health and status, and they had no regard to want to have peace with God, their hearts were full of unbelief. And so what did they do? It says, were hurling abuse at him, meaning they were blaspheming Christ. They were reviling. They were defaming that very Son of God. But Jesus is not the kind of Savior that we're looking for. They created a God according to their own image, and they wanted a Savior in their own likeness with their own desires to fulfill their hard desires. And so for them, Jesus didn't just, he, he didn't cut it. And so it says that they were wagging their heads, meaning they were shaking their heads in derision. It's a gesture of uh, ridicule. And then it says there, they're saying, huh? And there's exclamation mark. It's, it's like saying, huh? Meaning they're looking at him and saying, what a joke. What a fool. Jesus, you're, you're such a pathetic loser. And they continued on with this scorn. Now, had their eyes were opened, they would have actually seen what was happening. Had their eyes were open at that moment, rather than Hying Jesus, they would have woed themselves. They should have been on their knees, weeping and crying. Because at this moment, they would have realized Jesus was not a loser. No, he was victorious. Because victory is being won by whom? By the very person that they were blaspheming. They would have cringed if they had real eyes to see what was going on. Why? Because if they would not run to him for shelter, what awaits them is nothing but their own doom. But unbelief blinds. Unbelief gorges out the eyes of understanding from, from their own sockets. And so the victims lose sense of reality. They walk in this life as though they're walking in darkness, groping in darkness, and they have no understanding what's right from wrong, what's real from not real. So what did they do? They started mocking him. And it says, this is what they said. You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. This is something that Jesus said three years earlier. And so they remembered what he said. And they threw it back at his teeth. And, and it's like stones of sarcasm. And they continued on and they said, Save yourself and come down from the cross. They weren't mocking him. They weren't asking him to save himself. It's kind of like they were saying to him, hey, Mr. Carpenter, 
didn't didn't you promise that you're gonna somehow destroy the 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 temple or you're gonna rebuild the temple in three days? Well, you have nails in your hands, and look, here is a hammer. So come and come down. Go on. Show us what you're mad out of. Go and rebuild the temple, you false prophet. You, you bragged about destroying the temple and rebuilding it. It is your time to shine, Mr. Miracle Maker. They were mocking him. If you have power to rebuild the temple, surely you have power to save yourself. It's amazing. Those that have unbelief, they look at the cross. And they conclude the exact opposite of what the cross intended to communicate. Because do you know what they were actually saying when they were mocking Jesus when he was on the cross? They were actually saying that it was Jesus' weakness that kept him on the cross. Right? Wrong. They couldn't be any further from the truth. It wasn't weakness. It was Jesus' strength that kept him on the cross. It was the strength of Jesus' love for sinners. It could have been so easy for Jesus to save himself. But the power of his love for us was so great that it outweighed his desire to save himself. And it compelled him to endure the suffering of the cross. That couldn't be further from the truth. It wasn't a sign of weakness. It was the greatest sign of Jesus' strength. And Jesus was not a false prophet. No, little did they know that Jesus was in the very process of fulfilling this prophecy that they, that they claimed that he's not fulfilling. Why? It was his body that was a temple. And it was being destroyed. And in three days later, he would rise again. But sadly, unbelief is not just foolish. Unbelief is stubborn. This, this crowd made up their mind. This Crowd, they rejected all the miracles, all the wonderful teaching, all the beautiful, glorious life of the Son of God. They denied it all and they chose the path of blasphemy than the path of belief. How sad. Now, according to Mark, it's not the only group that blasphemed because of unbelief. There is another group. In verse 31, it says, In the same way, the chief priests also along with the scribes. The chief priests and the scribes. These are the most godly men, quote-unquote, of all of Israel. Here are the men of the Scripture. The ones who knew the covenant of God. The ones who dedicated their lives to study the word of God. The most respected and the most honorable men. If there was any group of people that should have known the word and should have received and embraced Christ into their hearts, it should have been this group. But they were the most false converted men in all the world. Not only did they reject Christ, but they condemned him to death. And here, what they were doing is that they were dogging Jesus all the way to the cross. Feeling that sense of victory, delight. And they wanted to make sure that their evil plot is successfully completed. Now let's, let's have a look at what it says there. It says, in the same way. Meaning those 
religious hypocrites, those phonies. They lost all honor and, and dignity and they joined themselves to the crowd that was blaspheming. And they have things that are similar. Both groups reviled Jesus. Both groups had this unbelief and in their unbelief they were convinced that Jesus was on the cross because Jesus was weak. That he's utterly unable to save himself. Now that was what was common between the two. But there was one huge difference that characterized this group. It says there, now pay attention to what it says. They were mocking him among themselves. So the first group, when they mocked Jesus, they spoke directly to him. But the second group, they mocked Jesus among themselves. And when you look at the other gospel, parallel gospel accounts from whether Matthew or John or Luke, you'll find that they're all consistent that were mocking Jesus among themselves. In other words, they were looking down on Jesus so badly, they considered him so low that he didn't even deserve them talking to him. In fact, Luke uses a word not much, not mocking, but he would use the word sneering at him. That is to say, mockery of the worst possible kind. Their mockery was mixed with hatred, intense hatred. So much that they felt that Jesus did not deserve them talking to him. So they would communicate to one another. Oh, the arrogance of unbelief. Self-righteousness. Now, what were they saying? They were saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. <clears throat> In their own words, judge them. They were judged by their own mouth and what they said. Look what it says there. He saved others. It's an acknowledgement, right? He saved others. They know that he saved others, physically speaking. They know of his undisputable miracles. You know, not once did they ever deny the reality of his healing power. They always acknowledged his supernatural wonders. There were too many to, to count or to defy. Well, if Jesus performed so many miracles to the point that they themselves said he saved others, well, didn't they get it? Why didn't it click in their hand? They had unbelief. And in their unbelief, they would say this. Well, yes, of course, he saved others. Well, we know that. Well, absolutely, no doubt. Well, he keeps on saying that we are really bad people, that we're in need of a savior. How dare us? We're bad people that we need a savior? Well, obviously he's wrong. Because, of course, God is on our side. And, and since God is on our side and what he said was wrong, then he's not from God. And because he's not from God, therefore he cannot save himself. Oh, look at him suffering on the cross. He's so powerless. That's unbelief. He cannot save himself. Meaning, hmm, Jesus, do something if you can. Fight back. Show us what you're made out of. You see, they too refused to admit that it was the power of Jesus' love for sinners that kept him on the cross. Yet how true, how true this statement was. Put aside their unbelief. Put aside their mockery. This statement in and of itself is so profound. It has in it the gospel message. 
You see, Jesus, in order to save others from the penalty of sin, in order for Jesus to be our substitute, it was necessary. It was the righteousness of God that had to keep him there. And he could not save himself since he had to save his people. Amazing. God would use Pontius Pilate to write the first gospel track. And he would use even the worst kind of people to proclaim the gospel message. It was an open-air preaching. The first open-air preaching at the time of the cross. Verse 32. And they said, let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross. Why? Why did they want him to come down from the cross? It says, so that we may, be, may see and believe. <laughs> Against mockery. It's kind of like, Jesus, it's a checkmate. Try to get out of this one, if you could. And we'll believe in you. Now, at that point, what they were saying was absolutely not, not true. If restoring the sight to the blind, if the deaf are hearing, and those that were paralyzed are now jumping, and the dead are breathing, if all the works and the power of Christ did not cause them to come to Christ in order to find life in Him, but rather what happened when they... Um, witnessed the miracles of Jesus. Their hearts grew harder and harder. And they became so jealous of Christ and they hated him and they wanted him dead. Then how come, how is it that coming down from the cross is going to be of any help? You know, even later on, even the resurrection of Christ did not help them. Not only did he come down from the, but not, not that he came down from the cross, but he rose from the dead and they still didn't believe him. Do you know why? Even if Jesus came down from the cross, they would not have belief. Because no one believes in Jesus because of miracles. Miracles were there only to attest, to authenticate that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Savior, but they were not there to cause people to believe. Those miracles of the past, yes, they would strengthen people's faith, faith perhaps, but they never lead people to saving faith. Miracles never produce faith. They don't. We know that because even Jesus himself, when he gave this story of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16, you remember he was in hell, burning in hell because of his unbelief. And the rich man said to Abraham, let me read it to you. And it's in verse 27 of Luke 16. I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus to my father's house. Why? I have five brothers so that Lazarus may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And what did Abraham say? You know what Abraham said? They have Moses and the prophets. Meaning they've got the word of God. Let them hear them. Now listen to this. From the pit of hell, the unbeliever, rich man, said, No, no, Father Abraham. Let me correct you, Father Abraham. I've got my own theology that is far more accurate than your theology, Abraham. And he said, If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Meaning if they see some spectacular sign, they will believe. You see, this false theology is made in a, in, a, in, in a wicked place of hell. 
where people think that signs and wonders lead people to believe. That's, that came out of not Jesus, but the rich man from hell. And Abraham responded and said, If they do not hear Moses and the prophet again, the word of God, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If you truly want to believe, you don't need wonder from God. You just need the word of God. Demanding a miracle to believe never it's never an evidence of faith, nor even wanting to have saving faith. It's a sign of unbelief. Faith does not ask for signs. True faith takes God at his word and is satisfied with what God says, whether there is a sign or no sign. But to long for visible signs, this big miracle, the dramatic proof, is nothing but the devil's unbelief. A sign of, of unbelief, this issue, this sin of unbelief, is not an external issue. It's an internal one. It's a sin of the heart. You know, you hear people say, ah, oh, if God would just show me a sign outside in the, in the cloud, perhaps I will believe. No. They will not believe. Why? Because it's not about the external that will cause them to believe. It's the internal. And so long as they're not willing to believe, they will not believe. Well, let's wrap it up. At the cross, God showed us His sovereignty, the servitude, the servitude, and the scorn, the authority and the power and the control of God over circumstances, the compassion and the grace of our Savior, and the unbelief of man. What do we get out of this? What do we get out of it? We find in this narrative, it is as though that God has his measuring rod that determines the level, the degree of greatness. And it seems as though, as though that the world grabbed this measuring rod and they turned it upside down and they said, this is our standards of greatness. Here we have a Jewish peasant who sacrificially gave up his body and soul as a substitute to freely offer forgiveness to those who will believe in him. But in the eyes of the world, he was no more than a pathetic, weak savior. All his friends abandoned him, especially in, in those last days when he needed them the most. One of them denied him, and another betrayed him. The religious leaders turned against him. The government condemned him as a criminal worthy of death, and the whole world hated him. He was despised and rejected by all. And even his own death. He died the most disgraceful death. He died poor. He died naked. And he was crucified with the lowest class of wicked men. No one pitied him or gave him any kind of comfort. Even when we Read later on, we find that in his after he died, there was no place to bury him. They had to borrow someone's tomb to bury him there. By the world standards, he was the biggest fool ever lived. And he was the biggest clown ever died. In the eyes of the world, he was at the bottom 
of this measuring rod of greatness. And yet, Jesus Christ is the center figure of all human history. He stands alone as the centerpiece. By his death, he defeated death, bore the full wrath of God for sinners. And by his own power of resurrection, the heaven's eternal iron gates are swung open for people to enter in. Hundreds of thousands and millions of souls celebrating forgiveness of sins and salvation because of his name. Because there's no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. From his first followers down through the ages, billions of people swore allegiance to his name and are willing to forsake all, go the furthest places, pay the highest prices so that his name would be known. There are universities, hospitals, and schools were found in his name. Missionaries buried their hopes and earthly dreams, and they have gone to the ends of the earth preaching his story. And God himself highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow according to God's measuring rod. Jesus Christ reigns supreme, reigns majestic. What do we get out of this? We get this. Hebrews 13. This is the last passage I'm going to read to you. Hebrews 13. From 12 to 14, it says, Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. We know what it means when it says suffered outside the gate, right? says, so let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Brothers, I urge you to hold God's measuring rod the right way. Let us never judge our status or the status of others by how much we make or the clothes we wear or what car we drive or education that we have. Let us such Let us judge greatness by how much we lay down our lives for Christ and to one another. The right assessment in God's eyes is how fast, how far, and how long we run the race for Christ. The race for Christ. Not how much we have, but how much we sacrifice as Christ did. And we sacrifice for whom? Not the good people, the bad people, the worst kind of people. Let us show the compassion of Christ. Let us first enjoy the compassion of Christ and then show the compassion of Christ. Let us be like him. If Christ truly your hero, you will want to be like him. Listen, if Christ loves his people so much, that he was willing to um, sacrifice his body and soul for them, and you claim that Jesus is your hero, that he is your Messiah, that he definitely displayed the compassion of God on the cross, you'll do the same. You will love those that Jesus loved. And if your hero laid down his life for them, Brothers and sisters, you will do the same. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, 
you are sovereign and we praise you for your sovereignty. Jesus is compassionate and we enjoy that compassion. We delight in this compassion. Man is full of unbelief. We're ready to conquer the world for Jesus and proclaim the gospel so that this unbelief would turn to belief. Father, if Jesus, the Son of God, was able to satisfy you in every way, and you are eternal and infinite being, how much all the more would Jesus be able to satisfy us who are mortal, finite beings? Jesus, in him, all our needs are met and much, much more. Lord, would you put in our hearts, as the scripture says, that we would go outside of the gate, that we would gladly bear the reproach of Christ, not seeking earthly but eternal rewards. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.